Let's get together and talk about food. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Tuesday, July 25th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we preview an upcoming urban food forum. Growers and policymakers, restaurant owners, and neighborhood residents gather to collaborate. We'll talk food insecurity and the food ecosystem of a city. We take a listen to the radio stars of yesterday as Laura Rohde introduces us to the Parkston Pals. Yodeling is included. We'll seek advice for women in classical music and talk about how to acknowledge it and address it while building a flourishing career. Plus, a full-body workout that has South Dakotans taking flight. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Educators serve a crucial role in every community, so it's crucial to pay them for their work. But South Dakota teachers are near the bottom of the national pay scale. They only earn more than their peers in Mississippi and West Virginia. As a result, some have started taking hard looks at their paychecks. SDPB's C.J. Keene reports. The shortage of teachers in school districts, the competitiveness of their salaries, and the benefits packages offered to them have real impact in schools, but your local superintendent isn't at the helm of those decisions. Aberdeen School District Superintendent Becky Guffin says she sees how inadequate teacher pay has created gaps in students' education. I can speak to the math as an example. We no longer have a calculus class. We no longer have a statistics class because we couldn't find a teacher. We just scale the back to teaching what's required for the South Dakota graduation requirements. So our kids have lost opportunities because we can't find staff. Guffin made those comments during a recent meeting of the state's teacher compensation board. That group reviews pay for the state's roughly 10,000 educators using data to compare salaries to the overall workforce. The most recent findings show that despite the efforts of lawmakers, South Dakota teachers are behind their out-of-state peers in many brackets. Canton Senator Jim Bolin is a Republican on the compensation board. He compares South Dakota's current teacher pay situation to a track meet. We didn't move up significantly in terms of numbers of states that South Dakota passed, but we closed the gap significantly. So if you're in a two-mile race, we're not being lapped any longer. We're still finishing close to the bottom of, of the runners, but we are not being lapped. Bolin, a former educator, says pay matters if the state wants to recruit a meaningful number of teachers. You can't live on nothing. You know, people are competing in education with other states, but they're also competing with other businesses inside South Dakota who are paying more. Another lawmaker with concerns about the state's lack of movement is Democratic Sioux Falls Senator Reynold Nessaba. Also on the board, he says he's frustrated South Dakota is still spinning its wheels. I just think that the kind of places that make education a priority, that pay their teachers more, that that has enormous implications for economic development, economic prosperity, that we have not considered as a state. We could have the highest paid teachers in the region if we wanted. Right? It's a matter of making it a priority. It's a political decision. The compensation board meeting was held the same day Governor Kristi Noem announced a state surplus of nearly $100 million. Included in the data was a retrospective assessment of the state's Blue Ribbon Task Force, which had previously evaluated teacher salaries. Mike Siebersma says while the pay has consistently been on the rise, other states have made similar moves. After those investments, we checked the data again and South Dakota was still at 50th among teacher salaries. 
Good news of that is we weren't 51st. There actually are 54 or 51 reported uh, entities. I believe it includes the District of Columbia. So we were 50th then um, because as we were doing this in South Dakota, other states were kind of doing the same thing. So um, all salaries were kind of on the rise at that time. He describes the data as the most comprehensive look to date. They set a target salary for 1617 of 48.5. That year, with the increases that were uh, put in place, the actual average salary in South Dakota got up to 46.9. So did not quite meet the target from that point on. South Dakota was 51st up until there, with the big investment moved up to 48, 47th, and has been sort of hanging around 49.50 for the last couple of years. There is heavy demand for some teaching specialties. The data found early elementary and special education are the highest need areas in South Dakota. There are also shortages in language arts, fine arts, and math teachers. The data also shows that 11% of teachers either changed positions at the end of the 2021-22 school year or left the education field entirely. Looking at the numbers, Sievers must says that pressure will only be getting worse. So the best guess sort of projections are um, that we're going to be up about 195 teachers in three more years. Projections of our student population based on historic data. Um, so this year we have 137,468 students. That's project projected to um, go up by about 2,500 in the next three years. That will require about 65 new teachers each year to stay at the target student-to-teacher ratio. The Compensation Board is scheduled to complete its report by the end of September. It'll make recommendations on teacher pay for state leaders to consider. I'm SDPB's CJ Keen. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Since the beginning of radio, listeners have been informed and entertained by live performers behind the mic. Let's meet some from back in the day now. In 1947, two best friends from Parkston High School began to live their dream of becoming country music stars as they sang on Mitchell's KORN radio. The radio stars recently shared their story with Laura Rohde for SDPB. Haven't got a worry, haven't got a care, haven't got a thing to call my own. Though I'm out of money, I'm a millionaire, cause I still have my home in San Antonio. B. Shelsky and Alice Hager chose Home in San Antonio by Bob Wills as the Parkston Pals theme song. It was 1947, they were only teenagers, and they had a weekly radio show. That was kind of by accident. We uh, were in high school. We uh, cleaned our, the tables at high school at, when we had our hot meal at noon to earn our hot lunch. And uh, when we, we just uh, started singing for the, for the fun of it. And one thing led to another. At the Paramount Theater, they had a country western jamboree on Saturday afternoons. And so anybody who wanted to perform and stuff could go and, and have a place on the stage. And so we started going up there on Saturday afternoons. So we were approached that we could have 15 minutes of air time 
from the uh, radio station at Mitchell. So um, they offered us a spot if we could find sponsors. So her and I, we went to work in our hometowns and I canvassed Scotland and Freeman and stuff and I found some and she found some to sponsor us. And so we had to have a sponsor because they paid the bills, see, and they'd advertise, you know. And so we got our program every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock and we sang as the Parks and Pels. The voice you just heard was B. Shelsky. She and her best friend Alice Hager are both 91 at the time of this recording, and smiles light up their faces as they recall their time singing on the radio as teenagers. Again, B. Shelsky and Alice Hager. We got paid for doing it, you know. And so, oh, that was fun. The days we got paid, then we'd go shopping. <laughs> we canvassed Mitchell and go shopping. Oh, we had, that was the best years of our life. <laughs> <Every time you're> <laughs> oh, yes, we were country music people, you know, living our dream. <laughs> The high school juniors took their new singing career serious. We had to have a practice every week to line up our songs, which one we were gonna sing at that time. We mostly sang songs we liked to begin with. And of course, I don't know if B told you this, but um, we had favorites. Mine was Eddie Arnold, <laughs> and hers was Ernest Tubb. And so we'd pick songs that they sang. And we sang a lot of Eddie Arnold songs, I know. And, um, and then uh, songs were requested also from fans that wrote in at that time. And then we'd had to read our fan mail. You know, so-and-so wanted a birthday so song for some, their friend and stuff. We got a lot of mail. Here's one. Dear girls, please sing a song for Darlene and Charlie, Ardina and Ralph, Dolores and Leroy, and also for everyone else who is in love. Well, this brings back such fun memories for me. It was so fun. And it was a, is a way up on top of the high bank building in Mitchell, South Dakota, way at the top of that big building. So we had a lot of steps to climb. I don't think they had an elevator in those days. Because neither B nor Alice had a driver's license at the time, they depended on their parents to drive them the more than 40-mile round trip. They would take us up to Mitchell, you know, every Saturday. And that was a commitment for them because they li we lived on the farm. 
And so we'd take turns. The Walters would go one week and uh, the Mocks would go the other week to take us girls. I have to tell you, one night, time we got the giggles, we couldn't even look at each other and we'd start laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> Our mothers were shooting daggers out of their eyes. They were mad at us, but we couldn't stop. We were powerless to stop. You know, a nervous giggle. When you get nervous, it sometimes happens. And that did happen. <laughs> Even though they got fan mail and requests for autographed photos, the women said they didn't let their fame go to their heads, and they said it did not change the way their school friends treated them either. In 1949, B and Alice graduated from Parkston High School. Just a few months after graduation, Alice married Don Hager, and the couple left South Dakota for his career. Although this move marked the end of their radio career, it did not end their friendship. 74 years later, they remain the best of friends. Today, the women live in Sioux Falls and Scotland. They visit frequently over the phone. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Laura Rohde. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, it is a group effort to provide access to nutritious food within our communities. The Sioux Falls Urban Food Forum aims to address local food insecurity. July 26th and the 27th, local producers, restaurant owners, gardeners and growers, policymakers, pretty much anyone passionate about food security can attend four forum sessions at the Union Gospel Mission Thrift Store. So we have a great group of folks in the studio. They've done their vocal, vocal warm-ups and <laughs> already told jokes and stories. So this is going to be a great time hanging out together. We have Stephanie Peterson, who is a local producer from Fruit of the Coop. Welcome back. Thank you. To the chicken lady. Yeah, yes. or the egg lady. The egg lady. Yeah. The <laughs> Stephanie is here. Eric Weber is CEO of Union Gospel Mission. Eric, welcome for the first time. Thank you. And Jordan Deffenbaugh, organizer of the forum. And there are a lot of different hats that you're wearing, including a beaver hat, which we just talked about for River Ecosystems the other day on our show. Well, great. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you. <laughs> Tell Pleasure us, to be here. since this is um, your uh, forum that you're kind of coordinating, let's mm -hmm. start with you. Tell us, big picture, why is there a need for this and, and why meet it in this particular way? Well, a core need for our community is food and nutritious food and there's a lot of folks in our community that don't have access to it for a variety of reasons. And so this we, is a statewide audience, so we explain that yeah. to the people in rural South Dakota who are like, but you live in Sioux Falls. Of course you have access to food. Well, some folks don't have access to maybe a vehicle, or some folks might not have access to funds to purchase uh, nutrient-dense uh, local produce. Um, there's a variety of reasons why people don't eat or don't have access to uh, nutritious food. And what we're trying to do is get a conversation going. And, and these conversations have been had for years. Right. Um, 
about food insecurity in the Sioux Falls area, but not just here, but uh, when we have food deserts across the United or the United States, particularly in South Dakota, right. where there's grocery stores that are closing down, and you have to drive 45 miles to just get a carton of milk. Um, there's some deep fragilities that are present. And these forums, the four of them, are meant to get the folks that are doing the work already and care in the same room, talking to each other and collaborating, cross-pollinating, if you will. Yeah. When we talk about those fragilities or vulnerabilities, Stephanie, I remember you joining us during the pandemic and I was telling our producers today you know, people would have uh, refrigerators in their garage and, you know, people, the local producers would come and put eggs in there through, you know, and then a, a paperless or touchless payment system. You've learned a lot in the last uh, three years. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the fragilities that you saw and that have not uh, gone away or been solved by any means. Right, right. Yeah, it's like we then. really yeah. don't learn uh, any lessons, do we, as we go forward, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> especially in agriculture and food systems in general, I think. Um, and here in South Dakota, we have a hesitancy to look for anything um, different than what we've always done. And I think that um, hinders us in the end. Um, but yeah, so our, if we can focus more obviously on a local food system, and I think this food forum um, and is a great opportunity just to bring all the parties together because this kind of work can't be done without collaboration. Um, and obviously all of this kind of work is going to strengthen uh, local the local food system in general. We need more local producers. We need um, access to local food. We need more people buying it, um, institutions purchasing it. We need more land access for people who want to grow their own food. And I think it's it's all about like like in the community, we need community resiliency and care. Um, and I think that's kind of what this is all focused on. And I'm hoping we'll see some progress. Yeah. Eric, tell me a little bit about how your work intersects with Jordan's and Stephanie's. Yeah. So, um, Four years ago at the Union Gospel Mission, we just served meals, and now we give out food boxes. So we do about 2,000 boxes a month of food that's going to people in the neighborhood, and we try to put the best stuff in there. So 2,000 boxes of food for the neighborhood. Yes, a month. A and, month. And these people are walking, carrying food boxes when it's minus 30 out, you know, because and it's like, whoa, there's nowhere for them to get what they need. But I saw the need. Um, that in the community, not just the homeless, but the, the people in our community needed food. So I said, okay, well, I got this little space that I can bring in truckloads of food and we can start giving it out. And so that's what I started doing. I'm like, let's make it happen. Let's not stop, let's not talk about it. I, I don't sit around and talk about it. I, Jordan knows if I say I'm going to do something, I get it done and I go for it. And it's just that step that you have to take. If you want to merge with people and you want to partner with people, you have to be available and vulnerable to do it. So what I did in our community is said, let's get together. Let's figure this out. This was a year ago. Mm -hmm. And from, the, from a year ago, we started doing more and more food, more produce and things like that. And it's been an eye-opener because sometimes it's hard to get and then sometimes it's really easy to get. Um, it just goes in waves. Sometimes you're on somebody's radar, sometimes you're not, you know. But for us, like providing food to people that can stay in their house if they had an extra $80 worth of groceries, I want to do that. I want to keep you in your home. I want to keep you in your car or you're able to, like, send your kids to school because they're not hungry. I want to do that. And so with collaborating with these guys, it's just getting 
more people around the table, literally, and sharing what we have. And if we can do that and actually teaching people too, like how do you grow food? How, how do you cultivate it during the winter? And, you know, do you bring it inside? How can you do these things? Have that education piece. Yeah. 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 Um, Jordan, we were talking a little bit before we turned on the microphones. This is my, my neighborhood that, you know, I've mm-hmm. lived in and uh, my family still lives there now. When we talk about small towns, South Dakota, we talk about, you know, a small community. I actually always think of the Whittier neighborhood because it behaves yeah. like, I mean, that might not make sense to people who don't live here. The village you, of Whittier. Yeah. The, it you, is very you know much your neighbors. Yeah. You help each other yeah. out. You show it's up in crisis. Class. It's working it, class. You paint a mural in Menlo yeah. Park. There's a film fight every year on the last day of school yeah. as the kids walk home. I mean, there's just things that about that remind me very much of when I also mm-hmm. grew up in a small rural town. There's a lot of similarities. But there's also a lot of pressure on this neighborhood from a growing city because it is yep. so close. If you're not from this city, it's very close to downtown. Yep. Um, what kind of impact is that having on food security and, and community in the neighborhoods that are very close to this growing? I mean, we have look out our window, we see nothing yeah. but construction right now. I think it's, it's deeply complex. Mm-hmm. That's the first and foremost. The food system is deeply complex. The community of Whittier is deeply complex, and the million, hun, literally hundreds of millions of dollars of development that are going on on the perimeter of Whittier, it just simply, it stimulates the conditions, which then creates a space of housing going up in price, causing tax dollars to go up in price causing uh, more externalities to be pressured on the people who are living in Whittier. Some people will come out ahead and some people will not, Uh, especially if you consider the shakeup with DSS moving to Dolly Farm in two years. You're going to have a massive shakeup on where people access resources, Mm. particularly food. Um, So this is – all of this is like an intertangled – chaos of Christmas tree lights that we have to delicately unravel. And and, and I think the only way to do that is to do it in person, talking to other people. And and over time, you're not going to get it done in one conversation. You're not going to get it done in one project. It is continual. It's continual with the seasons. I mean, we're going to have to always be growing food. So... (laughs) I think it's about how do we build a culture that responds to change in healthy, effective ways. So I, I hope that a conversation like this, uh, this will not be the last. Yeah. We will continue to do these because that's, I think, the best way to for our community to come together. Stephanie, when you get people together like this, there is a great opportunity for innovative ideas, really out-of-the-box kind of, of thinking. What are you hopeful for? In that regard. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, there are a ton of different new ways to do things, right, that we're not doing. And, in fact, it's it's not that – you don't even actually have to be that innovative because so many other cities in the country are already doing this. Okay. Um, and there's models all over for us to follow. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, but, but it's also finding what works for that specific community. So, you know, it, it's obviously going to be relative to them and what, what that community needs and wants and desires. And so – you know, in addition to having like like all these folks at the table, really what we need is the community members to show up, 
like the mm -hmm. actual people who live in Whittier to show yeah. up and talk because you know there's a ton of work going on on food security around our our city by a lot of organizations um, and they're all doing amazing work but a, a lot of the times we're missing the people on the ground from those tables so I, I hope we get we get some uh, movement on that through Ta this forum restaurant owners because I mean, you work with restaurant yep. owners with a supply and what, what what do they bring to this conversation why well, so would, the, why would know, they show up? Yeah, they're kind of the end user, right, of some yeah. of the local food products. So it, um, it's really important to have them there. That's a huge education piece. Um, most restaurants don't understand the reason to buy local, or even what the point is, or even how to do it if they want to do it. So um, to have them, uh, you know, step into something like that and really also understand their place in the game and how they can make a difference by supporting local producers, um, it'd be great to have them there too as well. So. Put these and maybe if I'm off base, just you know, shake your head at me. But what you're saying, Eric, about teaching people how to grow and preserve, and then we talk about restaurants, and I know there is a, a you know, like a craft, you know, a, a, a Whittier neighborhood gathering for makers of, of goods as mm -hmm. well as well That's as food. Yeah. That's coming up. Um, are we really thinking, Eric, about sourcing from a community like Whittier of, of you know, growers? And gardeners and producers and artisans, they're there. Absolutely. In that. Okay. Um, right now, um, we, we have just planted eight uh, food boxes or actually planters with mm. food in them. We're growing, we're growing food in, our, yeah. in my parking lot at the mission. And so, and we put them on wheels so during the winter we can roll them inside the chapel area and I'll put some grow lights over the top of them and we will grow vegetables um, because we think that's important and actually help people that don't know how to learn how to, yeah. right? So when they go out on their own, they're able to do something like here's here's a seed. So t tomorrow uh, and the next day, I have a box full of seeds that people can come and just grab to plant and try something. And we want to help our community feel that they're important, but not only that, we want the outside of our community to say, we want to help. Because we're talking working class and poverty level. So this is, in Whittier area, there's a lot of poverty going on. And so surrounding Sioux Falls, the, uh, I call it across the tracks, you have people making three, $400,000 a year, and then you have somebody making $27,000 a year. And they share the same space. Mm -hmm. They share the same street. Your kids go to the same school unless you open yes, and enroll. Right. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. so um, so they're sharing these things and they're doing these things. And if we can come and collaborate together, then it's like, well, how can I help? Like a lot of people with a lot of money go, how can I help? And it's very easy. Open your wallet. Because if you show me your dollars, I'll show you your heart. Right. And a lot of people want to help. They just don't know how. So this is going to bring people together and saying, here's how you can help. Right. You know, I wanted to do a kitchen and to teach people how to cook and, and for BAM and for, you know, the CRCs to come and use our kitchen area when they're sharing our space. And we had all these guys, it's going to cost a million dollars. And they wanted to draw it all up. And, well, I did it for, a I did it for like 1300 bucks. All right, CRC, Community Revitalization Collective. What's BAM? BAM is the Beverly Ann Miller Institute. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's our nonprofit. But the CRC, that is in Whittier. That's okay. the uh, what is helping organize these forums 
and other projects. Final thoughts for our listeners where yeah. they can find more. Jordan, they're engaged and maybe they don't even live in Sioux Falls yeah. and aren't coming to this, but they like what's kind of happening with the collaboration and the conversation. Where should we send them to? Um, if you go to mycrc.org, uh, there's a bunch of events that are coming up. We're going to regularly update that. You can find us on social media, um, and you can follow UGM, myself, Jordan Deffenbaugh. Uh, there's the CRC. There's BAM. There, we're coming from a lot of different uh, angles. We'll so. put links up on our website yeah, at sdpb.org news. <laughs> My guests have been Stephanie Peterson from Fruit of the Coop, Eric Weber from the Union Gospel Mission, and Jordan Deffenbaugh talking about the Sioux Falls Urban Food Forum. That's Wednesday and Thursday, the July 26th and 27th. Thanks so much, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. This week in 1978, Governor Richard Knipe resigned in order to become the U.S. Ambassador to Singapore. He was appointed by President Jimmy Carter. Knipe served two two-year terms as governor after voters approved an amendment to the state constitution in 1972, he was elected to a four-year term in 1974. Consequently, Knipe became the first governor to be elected three times. He gained popularity through his people-to-people campaigns. Knipe memorably launched his 1970 campaign for governor with radio ads asking, What is a Knipe? Taking office two days shy of his 38th birthday, Knipe is the youngest governor the state has ever elected. During his first term, he overhauled the organization of state government by creating a cabinet system. Knipe appeared on the November 19, 1977 episode of Saturday Night Live as one of the five finalists in the show's Anyone Can Host contest. Some of his more notable accomplishments were in education. He prevented the closure of SDSU's now J. Lohr School of Engineering, and he opened the four-year USD School of Medicine. When Knipe resigned office, Lieutenant Governor Harvey Woolman took over. He was sworn in as governor by his brother, Chief Justice Roger Woolman. Although Governor Woolman only served in office for five months, he was more than a placeholder. He focused on water project development, proposed a plan to accelerate the elimination of the personal property tax, and highlighted the threat that railroad abandonment posed to the ag industry. But it was this week in 1978 when Governor Woolman took over for Governor Knipe, who resigned his office to serve as ambassador to Singapore. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant, visiting professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan University. We'll talk about surviving sexism in classical music up next, and we'll spin through the sky. It's all for a good workout. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, classical performers should be able to keep their minds focused on the music. They shouldn't have to worry about discrimination, specifically sex-based discrimination, in an industry where women are often 
underrepresented. Nancy Williams is hoping to help with that. She is a musician, educator, leadership coach, and author of a booklet called Survival Guide to Sexism in Classical Music. Dr. Williams is with me on the phone now. Dr. Williams, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is one of those downloadable PDF guides that you maybe don't think that you need until you realize that you do. Tell me a little bit about, especially in the role that you have as a leadership coach, learning that people needed some basic information about sexism and classical music put in one spot. Well, this all came about really organically because this spring, for whatever reason, there were um, a bunch of festivals, mainly European festivals for clarinetists that had no women that were performers, no women that were adjudicators, um, and no women that were teachers, and they just kept coming out. <laughs> um, so some some of us, particularly my colleague in the UK, Sarah Watts, started drawing attention to this in her Facebook group, uh, Clare Equality. Um, and as she was doing this, she started getting people reaching out to her with their stories. Mm. Um, and so she, we were having a conversation just about how awful some of these stories were. And I was like, I can help. I can do something so that people, because it, it's hard sometimes to um, be comfortable reaching out to other people for help. Sure. And so I thought, here's a guide. You can look at it in your own home. Yeah. You don't need to put yourself out there. And I, and I could give people just the basics about um, what sexism is, some of the lesser-known definitions, how to combat it, what to do if you've experienced it, and some helpful resources. Right. How to prepare for it in some ways mentally as well as, like, letting yourself know, hey, this might exist, and here's how I'm going to handle it, the, 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 you know, the connectivity that I need to have. I need to have friends. I need to have, you know, connections. If you, Nancy, go to any elementary school band program, the clarinets, there's a lot of girls in those seats. But in the professional level, where have they gone? How come? Yeah. <laughs> How come the, the flute section, the clarinet section, isn't all made up of, of uh, Ph.D. females? Yeah, and it's there was a, a study that was done a couple of years ago in the, uh, with classical orchestras around the world, and clarinet is one of the most patriarchal instruments, which the irony, you know, yeah. is that, as you said, uh, most younger players are girls. And and um, so there's a huge disconnect there. And uh, with the majority of men being in these high-profile positions, then being courted by sponsors, then hiring for these festivals, people that they know who are their male colleagues, and it just kind of is a, a perpetuating cycle there. All right, let's talk about some of the steps that for listeners here, and we'll put a link up to your guide on our website as well. But first, you have to acknowledge it's a problem. Problem. Step one: this might be a problem that can be hard for some people. How come? How come we don't want to easily acknowledge that in classical music, this exists? Well, from a women's point of view, the minute that you start seeing it and acknowledging it, 
um, then you you have to ask the question, what am I going to do about it? And then you have to ask the question, if I start speaking up, am I still going to get hired? How much is this going to affect my livelihood? Yeah. Talking with someone you trust, how, is impo- how important has it been to you to have friends that you feel you can be vulnerable with, you can ask questions to, you can share experiences with? So that's, that's huge. Um, for a long time, there was one aspect of, of gender bias I didn't even realize. I thought it was me personally mm-hmm. who, would, when I would speak up in a rehearsal with a, like a chamber ensemble with an idea, I would either get um, ignored or if I was lucky, there was like a small conversation about it, but then it would get put aside. And then one of my male colleagues 10 minutes later would say the same thing and everybody would think it was a great idea. And so for the longest time, I thought I thought it was me. I was like, I'm not being assertive enough. I'm not communicating well. And then in communications with my female colleagues, they were like, no, this is the thing. <laughs> this happens to all of us. Yeah. And it's just one of those. Um, so anyway, my, my point is having those communications with friends and colleagues um, is huge in making you feel like you're not crazy, you're not alone, this is actually a thing. Um, Documenting the incident, this gets a little more intense if you follow it to its logical conclusion, but if something happens, if you get, we'll use something gentle so people aren't triggered, you get an email that's inappropriate, save that email. mm -hmm. Say more about that. Why is this important to just... Sometimes it takes you a while to catch on what's happening. I guess I would say that from personal experience. Sometimes it, you're like, oh, yeah. that was that started happening six months ago, and I brushed it off. I wish I had, um, you know, that documentation now. So save the documentation. Yes, absolutely. It's um, it's it becomes legal when you write it down in the moment. When you keep track of it, it becomes legal proof, and none of us. None of us want to be in that situation where we need to have it, but uh, it's better to be safe than sorry. So just keep track. Yeah. Again, lots of, in this uh, online guide, lots of organizations and advocacy groups with links to and some more detailed information. But let's go to, you know, step four is seeking support from those advocacy groups. But taking action. (sighs) Taking action can take a lot of forms but it can also be very uncomfortable. Now, in the context of classical music, you want to be focused, like we said at the top of the conversation, you want to be focused on the work, on your part, (laughs) on your section, on your section leadership. How do you stay focused on doing what you need to do? Because taking action could derail, if not your job and your career, but at least your concentration that's pretty nuanced. What do you want to say about that before we wrap up here today? Um, well, it's, um, you're right. It's absolutely challenging to speak up. Um, if you don't, you risk, um, alienating your inner self. And, Mm. um, what I have, what I have found over the years is that, um, the price of speaking up can seem really scary and daunting when you're looking at your livelihood, but the world is a much bigger place than it was um, before the internet and before um, the Me Too movement. And um, ultimately, it's not the death knell for your career because there will be other places for you mm-hmm. that will you will 
uh, align with more and you'll be able to be more vulnerable in your music making. Um, and this is uh, taking time in the classical music. And, and sometimes it means that you will give up what you thought was your dream job. Um, but uh, staying silent can have a, a more deeper personal cost. Mm. All right. We've been talking about the survival guide to sexism in classical music with musician and educator and leadership coach, Dr. Nancy Williams. You can find her work at drnancywilliams.com and we'll put a link up to more information on our website as well. Thank you very much, Nancy. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Some people lift weights to stay fit. Some go for a jog every day. And some people, like Katie Kreitzer, take flight. Katie is an expert in aerial skills and performance. That is a full-body workout involving aerial acrobatics using two long silks hanging from the ceiling. And she is bringing this form of fitness to Sioux Falls as co-owner of South Dakota Aerial and Arts. It just opened this month. And Katie has graciously descended from the ceiling and joined us here in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Katie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. How in the world did you get started with this? What was your first um, interest? Yeah, so I had seen some friends of mine from back in Wisconsin who were doing aerial arts. I had no idea what it was. I just saw people in the air wrapped up in fabrics and thought it looked really fun and very interesting. I had done gymnastics growing up and really was looking for a hobby after I moved to the Sioux Falls area about six years ago. And I saw that there was a studio in town at the time, tried a class and really fell in love with it from there. Tell me a little bit about accessibility for different body types, different ages, different experience levels, because anytime we talk about fitness activities, we want to be as inclusive as possible. How, how does uh, aerial arts fit into that? Yeah, aerial is often seen as this big extravagant thing where you're climbing up high and doing crazy tricks. And it is really a very accessible, low impact sport. The fabric will take a lot of the weight from you. There are activities like aerial yoga, which assist with a standard yoga practice, making it easier, more accessible, and supporting you. And as we do, you know, in aerial silks or things like that, we stay very low to the ground, um, keeping it so you don't have to climb. You can do things easily. I have never taught a class where people were not able to do 90% of what we teach. And we've had people over 70 years old, as young as you know, three years old as well, getting up there and doing things and people of a variety of genders, ages and sizes. Tell me a little bit about what draws them to it. It has to be um, a really compelling thing to try. There's something about being human. You look at these things and you think that looks like something I want to figure out. There's a there's a mental puzzle to it. Like what do people tell you why they why they join and want to learn? 
Yeah, I think it's both a matter of it's a great form of fitness. It's challenging both mentally and physically, but it's also an art form. It's something you can take and you can perform. As an adult, you can do showcases, do performances. And as a kid, it's a form of play as well. And I've had a lot of adults say it feels more like playing than working out. I don't like going to the gym and just lifting weights. I find it boring and I can't stick to that as a routine. But when I come into the gym and always learn something new and can do it in a way that just feels like play, they want to keep coming back. Yeah. So let's talk advanced skills. Now, when you are doing the work that you do at your level, um, what has meaning and purpose for you? Is it accomplishing what I would call a trick? I don't know if you would call it a trick Mm -hmm. or a move. uh, Or is it more of a meditative kind of process? Like what's in it for you once you're at a higher level of practice? For me, it's really continually getting a different type of workout, improving my flexibility and strength, but also I've learned how to create my own moves that no one has ever seen before. And that's really exciting. Um, Aerial is a sport that only started in the last 25 years. So it's something where, yeah, there's a Uh lot of different exploration. I've had moves that I've shared online that have gone viral in the aerial community because no one has ever seen them before. And being able to create things and share it and get people excited about it uh, really fills my cup. We live in an age when that sort of accomplishment or self-expression can spread very quickly. Are you an artist? Are you a athlete? Are you a dancer? Are you a performer? Are you a coach? All these things? Have I hit anything that you're not yet? I would say really all of the above. I really see myself mostly as a coach um, above all and an artist because I am creating things up in the air. Though I do perform what I create, I think that it's really, again, doing things, feeling it in your body, really just enjoying the experience of being up in the air and trusting that your body can do the crazy things you're asking it to. Right. Let's talk about that because we just had a conversation not too long ago about climbing, like rock climbing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have complicated relationships with their bodies, especially if you like, I don't like these other fitness things. I'm not in the great shape, in the greatest shape. I want to come back into a space and learn how to appreciate what my body can do and not focus on the things that it can't do or can't do anymore. Mm -hmm. How do you help people come through that block of allowing them to trust their body again in a safe, monitored way? Please do not go dangle from (laughs) your ceiling at home on a pair of sheets and tell people that you heard it here. Safe. Yes. In a safe way. Safety is very important. And I think it's really just meeting your body where you're at in that moment. We all start somewhere. Uh, My co-owner at South Dakota Aerial and Arts has lost 80 pounds doing aerial and started as what she would say, a couch potato, right? Just you have to acknowledge where you're at, but also know that progress will happen. Even climbing, I could not climb for close to three months. I was on the ground. It took time and just celebrating the successes along the way is super important because no one ever has started good at (laughs) aerial or (laughs) any form of fitness you're not going to come in and crush this on day one but it's also not like climbing the rope in gym class in like the 80s like I was forced to do so you might actually catch some air with this (laughs) eventually (laughs) all right Katie Kreitzer um, is co-owner 
of South Dakota Aerial and Arts. They're brand new. Get outside and do something uh, fun or stay inside because it's hot and do something that gives you confidence today. Katie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. On the next In the Moment, the Dakota Political Junkies join us for an update on statewide political news. We will follow the money in appropriations. Plus, we'll talk about the departure of Governor Nome's most recent chief of staff, what that means, what that doesn't mean for her relationship with state lawmakers. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. You can see today's videos on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to check that out. Thank you for listening. <laughs>